Lord, and thank you for our Savior, and uh, bless our time now, Father. Help us. Give us wisdom. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, uh, as we continue talking about uh, the Spirit and the Son, we come to another section. I turned it on. We come to another section dealing with uh, what I've entitled uh, the uh, anointing of the Spirit on Christ and and the empowerment of the Spirit on Christ. And one of the things uh, that we're going to look at here today is the concept of spiritual warfare or warfare uh, in the life of Jesus. And, uh, you know, that warfare consists of many things. Uh, That warfare, uh, as you know from Scripture, is going to consist of Jesus' battle uh, with the Jewish people, with the rulers, with the cosmic powers. Uh, In a broad sense... We can say that that deals with Jesus' uh, warfare in the spiritual realm with the demons, which, of course, is illustrated uh, in different passages that deal with demon possession, Jesus' sovereignty over the demons, casting out demons. Uh, We can go in so many different directions just to illustrate uh, Jesus uh, uh, engaging in spiritual warfare. And so I thought, well, let's go to maybe one special place, and that is the temptation narrative. And that is, uh, that's for a reason, uh, and that is because of the theology that emerges uh, from this text, a theology that, to be quite honest, I wasn't even prepared for uh, because it is so extensive. Uh, But I want you to see the structure, and the reason why I have this this up on on the uh, TV here today is because I wanted to show you the outline uh, of the text, and so uh, this is the way the text outlines, or this is an outline that I did. You guys can do this too. Uh, just take a passage of scripture and just try to kind of itemize it based on what's going on. Okay, but I want you to notice first and foremost um, uh, how the the passage begins in verse one. Uh, so just look there with me here. It says, "You know, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to." Uh, to the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, if you look down even at my notes here, uh, up here, um, how does the passage end? Well, look at your Bible. Where does the heading end? Well, in my Bible, it ends at verse 13, and then it starts a new paragraph, right? Uh, Okay, that's fine because it's right. But what I'm arguing is that verse 14 kind of forms an inclusio, in the passage, inclusio just basically means like uh, grammatically and syntactically and the way the structure, the literary structure of the text, the way it functions is that this entire episode in Jesus' life begins and ends with the Spirit, okay? So it begins and ends with the Spirit. That's kind of the bookend uh, surrounding this whole text. Why does that become important? Well, hopefully we'll, 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 we'll see why. Uh, but it, it is very important, okay? It is very important. So what I wanted to do was just kind of take uh, this entire narrative here, and what I did was I kind of, I broke up the entire uh, temptation of Christ into into three waves. Some uh, commentators and some theologians actually call this the temptations of Christ. Why? Because there's not just one, right? There's uh, multiple things that the enemy is setting before uh, the Son of God, uh, to tempt him with. It's not just one thing. And so what I've entitled this is three waves of temptation that came uh, Jesus' way. Uh, and, the, and today we're going to deal with the first wave, 
Okay, so this is the way that, Lord willing, um, uh, this is going to work, is we're going to look at these three waves of temptation separately for the next several weeks, and then my time uh, here in Sunday school will end for a while. Uh, Brother Brian will take over, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. But, uh, but uh, when I got to this section, I thought, you know, there, th- there's no way uh, to really uh, glance through this quickly in order to appreciate what it is that we're being given here, okay? So uh, let's just kind of walk through the passage uh, together. Now, I want you to understand the very first thing, and I guess I'll put it over here because this is where I tend to put, like, terms and different themes. Uh, but one thing you need to understand is that this passage is edemic. It is edemic. Notice the way, just remember, in the original Greek text, there are no chapters. In the original Greek text, there are no verses, right? It's just just continuous uh, flow and stream of literary thought. No numerical separations, okay? That came much later, okay? Uh, but notice the way chapter 13 ends, or chapter 3 ends, okay? Uh, how does it end? Verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So chapter 3 ends on an Adamic point, right? It ends with us sort of having Adam in our purview, see? And, uh, and, who, and what is Adam called here? Well, he's called the son of God. Okay, so we need to start already thinking in, in line of, okay, well, so Adam is a type of the Son of God, right? Because to, to have the title Son of God, I mean, that's a big deal, you know? And so what I'm suggesting is that this, this sort of prepares us for this Adamic situation, conflict, uh, which is another way of, you know, speaking of this would be to say it's also an Edenic situation because we're going back to the Garden of Eden in that situation, what happened in the Garden of Eden? Well, we can, we can sort of construct it this way, that what happened in the Garden of Eden is that the Son of God was being tempted by the devil, right? The same thing that's going on here. And ironically, what does the first wave of temptation consist of? Look at there where it talks about a verse 3. See that down, kind of down below here? I should have one of those laser pointers, you know, if I was really, like, sophisticated. Verse 3 says, temptation to do what? to eat you see and so nothing new here guys i mean the serpent's been doing this for a long time uh, he gets you uh, t- he tempts you in a in a very uh familiar way right and so that's that's uh you know so that's kind of what's going on here and matter of fact what i'm going to try to do as we go through this carefully and meticulously is hopefully show how every single one of these temptation narratives or these waves of temptation have edenic and ademic themes in them okay so that what we understand is that um you know and, and, and what is the overall sort of superstructure of the temptation uh well i what i would say is that it all is uh it all is uh, no 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 it, it's all kingdom focused and so uh, that's why the theology of the kingdom is so important, you guys, because when the, when the devil first tempted the original Adam, what was at stake was kingdom theology. It was, what was at stake was the kingdom. It's the same thing here. Like, just to kind of give us a little preview, look at verses five, and, uh, 5 through 8, at least up here, the second wave. The temptation consists of kingdoms, right? And so the enemy is telling uh, uh, Jesus... 
you know, if you just worship me, I will give you all of these kingdoms and all of this glory. Now, you know, we're, we're going to see that all of that, too, was conditioned upon the same thing that Adam's temptation in the original Edenic situation was uh, sort of conditioned upon the son of God's obedience. And so it's almost like here we go again with the theology of anti-Lord. This is very important because uh, it kind of uh, uh, kind of takes us out of the realm of, you know, the, the serpent in Eden. You know, it's not just for, you know, children's children's. Uh, tales and and you know children's coloring christian coloring books and you know what i'm saying there's more to it than that you know the serpent in eden is asserting himself not just as some you know a sly slippery snake he's actually trying to present himself as the anti-lord of a false or a pseudo covenant okay and you'll see that as this is going on because even in the next wave wave number 2 of temptation that is really what's being set out there even before Jesus is 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 upon the condition of perfect exact and total obedience to the serpent you will gain the kingdom and you will gain the glory that he's offering you <laughs> so it's like exactly what Adam is being presented with in the original covenant of works is you obey me perfectly you gain the kingdom you gain the glory you move on you see what I'm saying? So, so, so we'll, we'll come back to that because that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of presumption there on my part. Okay, so uh, also what I do, um, this is kind of giving you guys kind of a sneak, sneak peek into how I study because not only did I, did I sort of uh, uh, analytically analyze this whole, this whole temptation thing, but I also jotted down uh, redemptive themes that are contained in this passage. And you can see some of the themes. We're not going to go through because we don't have time. Okay, but uh, you can see sort of the themes that I believe emerge out of this whole thing. Adam, Exodus, manna, kingdom, kingdom glory, suzerain vassal arrangement, as we're going to hopefully go on to prove, uh, dominion, uh, covenant faithfulness, worship, temple. All these ideas are contained within this heresy uh, because remember, uh, even in the original uh, temptation, right, what is what is the anti-Lord doing? He's a heretic, right? He's presenting a false theology. And uh, I think it was Meredith Klein who pointed out that Eve actually became the first convert to the new religion, and she became the first evangelist of the new religion of the serpent, and Adam became her first uh, uh, convert you know what I mean? <laughs> to a whole different gospel, really, uh, which is no gospel at all, as Paul tells us, right? Uh, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll come back to this, okay? Uh, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and the spies of Canaan. Uh, because what's going on, uh, even in this temptation, uh, all of this is sort of being brought up. But in order to do that, uh, this is what I labeled an excursus. You guys know what an excursus is? If you read a technical commentary or something like that, an excursus is kind of like when a, a person wants to sort of take a special look at something within the study itself. So like, you know, a lot of commentators, they'll do an excursus specifically on one aspect of what they're teaching. And just to like, we got to go deeper here. So here's a whole new section, just a specialty section on something that's important. And that's what I did here with uh, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and the spies in Canaan, because it all... Uh, it all emerges uh, from the text. So uh, let's, let's try to do this and, and, and try to follow through the, um, the, actual, uh, the actual narrative here, okay? Uh, let me see here. Uh, so that's what we're looking at right there today. Uh, the ministry of the Spirit to fill and lead Messiah into conflict with the anti-Lord. That is what is going on. What is the reason? Why does the Spirit do this? And this is why I'm saying you have to look at verse 14, 
the reason that the Spirit does this, why does the Spirit lead the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Why does he do that, right? I think it's because the Spirit, obviously orchestrating the entire life of the Messiah, filling him, empowering him, and here we're being, I mean, I don't know what your text says, but mine says he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So it's almost like the Spirit is sort of driving him around in this desolate wasteland, right, preparing him for this temptation. And I would say in order for him to obtain verse 14, which is for him to return in the power of the Spirit. And so uh, this, is, this becomes critical uh, because... Uh, what is at stake even at the original temptation in Eden is the concept of advancement. You see, what, what, is, what is at stake with Adam is that he, uh, he has to pass what many theologians call probation, right? He has to pass the probation of the temptation, and he has to pass this sort of probationary period of obedience, See, he has to obey. That's the whole, that's the whole point. And this will actually be brought out uh, pretty amazingly here uh, because um, of, of the scripture that's going to be used here. So you can see what I'm saying here. You know, not only is uh, um, in this first wave of temptation, you know, the, con- the, you know, the whole concept is surrounding food. And uh, Jesus is uh, sustained by the Spirit. The setting is in the wilderness. And the duration of this is 40 days. Now, 40 days, okay, the 40 days uh, becomes important. Where do you know about the 40 days? What does 40 days signify in your mind? What does that remind you of? Anyone? Anyone? Sinai. What's that? What about Mount Sinai? That's right. And actually, that's probably the principal text that's behind uh, this temptation. Anybody else? 40 days, 40 days, 40 years? Noah, right? It rained for 40 days, right? Anybody else? They wandered for 40 years. Here's a quick question for you. Why did they wander for 40 years? Why? Okay. No, no, no. Wally, was, you were on it. Yeah, you know they. Uh, uh, this is why I have this. Uh, why I have this special section here. Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and the spies of Canaan. Why? Because the forty days, and I think this is what I've concluded, is the forty days is sort of typological now of different aspects uh, in the history of Israel for the life of Christ. And so what you have is uh, Moses fasting for 40 days going up to Mount Sinai in the receiving of the law. You have Elijah fasting for 40 days as he trekked to the mountain of the Lord in Horeb. He fasted for 40 days. Consequently, like the Son of God, Elijah too was comforted. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8. He was comforted by angels in the wilderness just like Jesus was where? In Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, where angels came and ministered to Jesus in the wilderness after his temptation. You're not going to find that in uh, Luke or Matthew. You find it in Mark. Isn't that ironic? Mark is so, you know, Mark gives us like two verses on the temptation. That's it. <laughs> it's just a little blip, right? And the other guys go into it. But Mark 
Turn there, uh, Mark chapter 1. You guys know this, I think, because I've said it before. Some of you might remember. Where's Mark? You know, sometimes I smack myself upside the head. No, I'm serious. Because I go like, okay, wait, is Mark before Luke? No, seriously, in my brain, I still go, is Mark before Luke? Like, I should know this. Like, I've been a Christian for, you know, too long. I'm a pastor. Like, I don't even know where. Is Mark before Luke? I sit, I'm serious. I sit there in my office. I go, did I really just ask myself, is Mark before Luke? What's wrong with me? Eden has memorized all the books of the New Testament in order. And it's like, I can't even know. Anyway, so... A little self-deprecation there. Um, uh, yeah, look at this, right? Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. So that's important too. Look at that. The, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go to the wilderness. So what is It's like the Spirit is driving him out to the wilderness. Wow. This is like, this is, a, this is an issue of power, right, going forward. So, and then he says, you know, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. So what many theologians and commentators point out, even if you look at the Gospel of Mark, is they point out that this is, a, this is an Elijah-like echo going back to First Kings, right? So it's almost like what we're supposed to see is that, you know, here finally we have the true prophet, priest, and king, right? And, and, and as the true prophet of God, he sort of follows in the mantleship of Elijah. And so it's kind of like he's following in his footsteps or whatever. But, 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 but at any rate, look at it. It also mentions this. He was with the wild beasts. Why do you think it mentions that? Why, do, why does it mention the wild beasts? Mm-hmm. How? Because Were there wild beasts in the garden? Yeah, I remember sometimes typology, when we talk, uh, talk about biblical typology, uh, we talk about uh, uh, either similar... Uh, uh, it's similar or it's uh, by way of contrast, right? And so sometimes uh, that's the way typology w- works. It's, it's, not, it's not the same. It's actually opposite, but that's typological as well. So unlike Adam, who was in Eden and the animals were subdued and under his control and were friendly to him, the Son of God, the typology works by way of contrast here because here, you know, Jesus is being uh, tempted in an environment that is far more hostile than Adam 1, right? So Adam 2 is in a much more hostile environment than Adam 1, showing you that the temptation is much, it's escalated much further. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's actually a good point because um, G.K. Beale points out in his biblical theology that uh, that uh, this uh, text right here may actually allude to many of the passages in uh, the prophets. For example, Isaiah, Isaiah, uh, I think it's Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 65, where it mentions uh, wild beasts in Jerusalem and how in the new creation they will be done away with, you know, and stuff like that. So there is probably some sort of conceptual connection going on there. But uh, but uh, wh- wh- why were they forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? It's because for 40 days the spies spied out the land and they grumbled and complained in unbelief, the people, right, for fear that the enemy was too great. Right. And so what did, what did God say to them? He says to them, you know, I think it's a numbers. Uh, oh, where's that at? I think it's numbers 13. I should have it here, don't I? 
Oh, yeah, Numbers 13 and 14. Yeah, you guys, come on, you got my notes right there. Uh, <laughs> numbers 13 and 14, you know, that's where, you know, God says, well, because, you know, to the number of days that you grumbled and complained in unbelief, each day will be one year to you. And so for 40 years now, you will wander in the wilderness because for 40 days you complained in unbelief. So the issue, what was the issue at stake there? Unbelief, and so it was an issue of obedience, you see? Uh, remember that the book of Hebrews repeatedly ties in the concept of Israel's unbelief and disobedience in the wilderness as the reason why they were not able to enter, you see? So this this sort of escalates the whole uh, the whole language of uh, in Luke in this temptation that what is at stake here in this temptation is the issue of obedience. Now remember, I told you before, as we consider covenant theology, uh, Adam one and uh, Adam two, right? When I say Adam two, uh, we're talking about the, the Bible calls Jesus Adam the second, uh, calls him the second and the last Adam, right? Where's that at? Uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 46. Jesus is the last, and he is the second Adam. The second and the last Adam. Both are important, by the way. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, Joseph Ur- Urban and I had a debate on this. Well, he, he stressed the second, I stressed the last. I said, well, voila, the text says second and last. So why are we debating? We're still friends, you know? Like, I said, okay, so you say second, why? Because he's trying to keep the symmetry between the first and the, and the second Adam, right? I say last, why? Because the last implies that he is the last in a series of Adams. A series of Adams. I mean, think about it. Right here in this temptation narrative, many of the, uh, we already kind of set the whole, you know, Adamic and Edenic theme based on verse 38 of chapter 3, because, you know, there Adam's mentioned, but uh, Israel is also cast in the language of Adam. Uh, Israel was also tempted in the wilderness, you know. Israel is also called God's son, Uh, okay. Exodus chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, Israel is called the son of God. And so they kind of represent like a corporate Adam of God. And many people throughout Scripture are sort of looked upon as Adamic figures. Look at Noah. Noah is like an Adamic figure. He's the head of a new humanity. And that's why the whole, uh, you know, uh, uh, dominion mandate is repeated again to Noah. Noah, you will take dominion and and you will be fruitful and you will multiply. And it mentions the image of God again. And so you have this over and over. So, you know, Noah is a type of Adam. Abraham is a type of Adam. Israel is a type of Adam. David becomes a type of Adam. And there's theology to support all that. And then the last Adam arrives, which is Jesus. And Jesus, unlike all previous Adams, succeeds where they all fail. And so that's really at work here. So let's, let's keep going here. So wilderness, uh, the wilderness uh, theology is uh, very important. The 40 days is very important. Matter of fact, I think I actually, I actually can kind of sum it up for you guys. Any questions? Please slow me down and tell me I'm wrong or that you disagree. Come on, spice it up a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah. Impelled. Yeah, I think the, I think actually the word uh, means something like being driven out or something like that. Uh, I have uh, I have Lagos here. I can just, uh, you know, that's what's so great about Lagos. You guys don't own Lagos. Shame on you. Um. 
And let's see what Lagos says about this word impelled. Yeah, ekbalo. Ekbalo, and which uh, ekbalo literally means to be thrown, to be thrown out, you know what I mean, or something like that. So I thought that's what it was. Yeah, think about that. You know, he was thrown out by the Spirit into the wilderness. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, enough of that. Uh, let's go back to. Uh, no, enough of that. What happened? I lost. My, oh, there we go. I don't even know how I came back up. <laughs> uh, just very fortunate. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, you know, kind of mentioned this whole thing. You know, temptation is thus a recapitulation. You guys see that up there? Temptation is thus a recapitulation, a source of anti-typical tip, fulfillment of the original Adam who failed in his probation and was overcome by the anti-Lord. Wow, you guys. Jesus, however, I'm just, uh, yeah. Jesus, however, is not just a second Adam. He is the last. That is the last in a long line of Adamic figures. I feel like I just said that. Israel uh, and Moses, who are, f- who, who all, uh, typo, who falter at critical points and more important figures, uh, figure, uh, they more important prefigure the life of Christ as God's anti-mediator and chosen servant who only, who not only engages in kingdom warfare, with this anti-Lord, but overcomes him at every stage until at last he is vanquished, bound, destroyed. The, the temptation of Christ set forth Christ as the leader of a final exodus, the one who faithfully will destroy our enemies and take possession of the heavenly land, and who does not despair under persecution, revealed in he w- but, but instead he was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Why is, uh, why is the 40 days important with the concept of Elijah? Because if you remember what's going on there in ex- uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19 is all about Jezebel telling Elijah, I'm going to kill you. Basically saying, like, as the gods live, <laughs> you, you will die. Like, I'm going to kill you for killing all my you know, prophets of Baal, right? And what does Elijah do? He's driven out. He's driven out, you know, by Jezebel, and he's on the run. He finally sits under a tree, and he tells God, oh, God, like, forget it. It's over. You know, it's enough. He said, I'm no better than my father's. Let me die now, right? So he comes to a point where he, in a sense, he falters, right? In unbelief, he wavers. He doesn't trust. He doesn't trust the promises of God regarding the kingdom of God. Guys, God had already promised Elijah and everybody else prior to Elijah that he would establish his kingdom. And here is Elijah saying what? What is his final exclaim there? He says, I, you guys know this verse, I alone am left, right? And so this represents an antichrist crisis in redemptive history. If Elijah is the last faithful seed of the woman left, then we're in trouble in redemption. But what does God reassure Elijah about? No, 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 no. I have reserved for me 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, right? So don't worry, right? Like God's kingdom promises will come to pass. But when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he does not fail. He does not succumb to the temptation. He does not despair. But instead, he trusts completely in God. So um, go back to this. Okay, so, you know, uh, you see that, you see the fact that the, the hunger uh, aspect of this is very important. You know, Jesus is hungry. He's, bought, he's brought to a point of total and absolute weakness 
right, where he is, uh, look here, let's, 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 let's go slowly through this, right, because this kind of emphasizes the whole ministry of the Spirit, you know, first the Spirit equips the Messiah, Jesus was full of the Spirit, then he guides the Messiah to the location of the conflict in the wilderness, and prepares the Messiah for the conditions of the conflict by empowering him to fast 40 days, and that's exactly what happened in Elijah's uh, life, he was empowered to fast, right, the angels came, and the angels told him, you need to eat, right, Eat now, they tell you know. They told him, "Rise and eat." Okay, uh, why? Because then the Lord, the word of the Lord comes in and says, "The journey is too much for you to fast for forty days. So you need the strength of this food to carry you to fast." Okay, so kind of like in the same way, the Spirit of of God sort of sets the the conditions. He strengthens the Messiah to fast for forty days, and then he impels him out, casts him out into the wilderness. Uh, one uh, one one commentator actually made a brilliant uh, suggestion, and what he said was, "Why is the Spirit credited with leading Jesus into the wilderness?" And he said, "Maybe because Jesus does not ever purposely put himself in the way of temptation, right? Yeah, which could be sinful in and of itself." And I thought of James chapter one. Where it says, you know, let no one say that we is tempted. I am tempted of God, for God does not cannot be tempted and does not tempt anyone. But each man is tempted when his heart is drawn away, you know, and enticed, right, and allured. So it's like in that process that James is describing, he's describing like there's a very fine line into which you cross over from being sort of a victim of temptation to being actually a pro, uh, uh, sort of the one, uh, you know, enabler. Yeah, just kind of placing yourself in the allurement of temptation, which can itself be a sin. So Jesus does not ever place himself in the way of temptation. You know, so that the spirit orchestrated that, you know, and, and, and everything like that and the sovereignty of God. But here, uh, therefore, the spirit is orchestrating. He's permitting the entrance of the anti-Lord only at the point of Messiah's deepest hunger and weakness. See that here? So what what's going on is um, that that it's like the, the spirit is setting the stage. He's bringing Messiah to his lowest, weakest point in dramatic interest so that we understand the, the, something of the psychological you know, and physical constitution of the Messiah at this point. He, at his, he is at his weakest point. And what does the devil tempt him with? Well, let's kind of fast forward. I guess we can fast forward. All this stuff is really, you know, important. But uh, this, uh, look at the top there. So this escalates the drama of the temptation, intensifies Jesus' dependence upon the Spirit. If he's got nothing left in the flesh, he's weak. He's, uh, I've been to the wilderness where Jesus was tempted. I think, they think, you know. What do you think about when you think about a wilderness? Right? Do you think? Okay, anybody else? Trees everywhere. Forest, right? Michael's right. It's a, it's a barren wasteland. There's no trees, nothing. It's, it's just kind of like, uh, I don't know what you would uh, sort of like. It's kind of like... Uh, New Mexico or something. It's out in the middle of a... It's kind of desert rocks and dry little tiny bushes. And there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no shade. There's no cover. There's nothing. It's, it's very desolate, right? Uh, it's just like a howling wasteland out there. And that's where Jesus was being led around by the Spirit of God, you know, hungry. He's brought to his absolute lowest point. He doesn't even have a tree for refuge. He's out there just uh, exposed, you know? And that's when... 
uh, the Spirit allows the anti-Lord to come in at that weakest point. And so again, here we go again, dramatic interest, but here it is, typology by contrast. This is totally different than Adam. And it's meant to tell us that it's worse than Adam. You know, Adam was strong and he was in a paradise and he was surrounded by very friendly animals and, you know what I mean, and, and, and Eve and Adam had everything they ever wanted, right? It was all right there at their disposal and that's where temptation came. Here is Jesus. He has nothing. He's hungry. He is weak, right? And, and the only thing he can do is depend upon his, uh, depend, depend upon the strength of the spirit, and, 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 and what we're tempted to do in our Christology is to say, but yeah, but isn't he God? I mean, if he's God, I mean, just get, you know, he's power. He can create the whole world. Why can't Jesus just ask God? Why can't he just muster up the strength to destroy the devil? It's because he did it in his humanity. You see, he did not pull independently from his attributes in order to overcome the hunger that he was experiencing. That's what makes that's what makes his obedience so um marvelous and his dependence upon the spirit so intense yeah it's like philippians chapter two you know what i mean he emptied himself in the sense he he laid aside the privileges divine privileges that he had and he did not operate according to those divine privileges remember deity was not something he needed to grasp or hold on to he already had that so what he came is as a form of a servant yes ma'am No, we did not. I asked them not to because uh, the Muslims are not friendly, number one. Number two, uh, it takes all day and you kind of get a little bit out of it. I didn't go. I stayed down there witnessing to some Muslim guy. <laughs> yeah. You went up there in this. They went jihad on you. Uh, it's uh, centuries old. I think it goes back to the 10th century. <laughs> How about we go back to the study here instead of Ray Comfort? We're already at a Way of the Master episode. Uh, okay, guys, dur- turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Through the Spirit, Jesus not only resisted, but also resigned himself to the will of God and to the word of God's grace. Instead of using his mouth to eat, Jesus used his mouth to speak the word of God and resisted the devil. It's exactly what we should do. When we're tempted, don't feed your flesh, speak the truth. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I was thinking about that very thing. 
and I think he had the Spirit's aid uh, to a certain degree, um, but um, uh, I, I just think, I don't know to what degree, I think it was more on the level of a general grace or a general operation, I think having to do with his nature at that time, which was less than uh, someone who was confirmed in righteousness by the Spirit. So uh, uh, I think that, uh, I don't know, I don't know the exact degree to what degree the Spirit was operating upon Adam at the time. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard question. Anybody want to speak to that? I, d- I definitely don't have the final answer on that. To what degree the Spirit help Adam? Uh, I would say to the degree that is consistent with the, with the, uh, with the where he was in redemptive history, at that point. Which to me, I think Adam was created innocent. He was created good, and in that sense, he was created righteous. Uh, but he obviously did not possess the Spirit in a new covenant sense. Because then he couldn't have lost the spirit, you see. So, and the very fact he needed confirmation shows that he didn't have the spirit to that degree. You know. Um, yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, exactly what I'm saying here. It's like Jesus didn't use his mouth to eat. He used his mouth to speak the word of God, right, and resist the devil. Now, where is he quoting from here? Luke 4, 4, where he talks about man should not eat by bread alone. Now, Matthew's version of the, of the temptation has a fuller account. He says, you know, uh, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And this actually goes to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, here's what's interesting, as you see there. What is really being cited is a whole section, 6 through 8, in the law. Okay? Uh, also, consequently, that's why, like, when you talked about Moses fasting 40 days, uh, uh, most would see that the Moses, the Moses background is what is essentially behind this, right? And the fact that he quotes from the law of Moses, you know, kind of supports that notion. But in, in, in uh, look, look, what, look what is said here, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. That's what Jesus is quoting. Jesus is citing Deuteronomy 8, 3. To stand a question, why? Right? Of all the texts, why this? Now he says, he humbled you. Who is the you, brothers and sisters? No, no, no. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. He humbled you and led you and, and let you and let you be hungry. That's Israel. Right. And so I've been asked before. Um, uh, in terms of. Israel theology, right, when I say Jesus is the true Israel of God, you know, people ask, well, how do you know that for certain? Right. Well, there's a lot of reasons why. But like, this is a primary example. This is a passage where, uh, in, you know, the, where, you know, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel writers are citing a text that is historically about Israel as a nation. But here, 
you can't help but to say when it says he humbled you and let let you be hungry. Now for us to look at the text, I mean, the text in Luke just said he became hungry. So Jesus, as the true Israel of God, is fulfilling this typological redemptive historical trajectory of what Israel was. Anybody have a question about that or anything? Even uh, terminology, guys, if I say a word that sounds just too complicated, can you raise your hand and say, Pastor Neil, what in the world are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah, this seems to be a good verse to show the true identity of Daniel. Mm. Uh, historically, you have the time of Israel, but he's the rest of Revelation. He's the Jesus. Yeah, that's right. There, There is uh, multiple layers to that, you know, because uh, as Israel theology goes, you know, you have... You know, you have Israel in different levels. You know, you have the nation. You have the Messiah. Right? And then you have the church. Right? And all three sort of fulfill an aspect of Israel. You see, how do we know the church fulfills the aspect of Israel? Well, how about passages like this? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 9 through 10. Huh? where Christians are called the holy nation, the royal priesthood, the chosen race. It can't, doesn't get any more graphic than that. Peter says, you are the chosen race. Well, who is he talking about, Jews? No. He's talking about Christians, you see. So this is the way that it works. This is what dispensationalists cannot possibly wrap their mind around. Uh, huh? Well, I just met with a friend not too long ago, and he tells me, he's like, I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't. I can't go with you guys. <laughs> I can't go along with you guys. You guys, you guys always want to, you know, you guys always want to replace Israel with the church. I was like, well, you can. The word "replace" is not a good term. First of all, second of all, your problems with Paul and Peter and Jesus, not with me. You know, what I mean, Peter's the one who called the Christians the chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know, take it up with him. You know, yeah. Uh, sort of makes a, a debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, they wouldn't see that language. No, they, they maybe maybe progressive dispensationalists would start opening up to that idea, but true classic dispensationalism would not. Uh, they wouldn't see. They wouldn't like that language. They just Israel is Israel is Israel is Israel. That's that's it. You know what I mean? And I, and, and here's the thing. The actually, ironically, the literalness of this is what's going to doom the dispensational uh, system. You know why? Because when you get in the prophecies of fulfilling Israel's future. You know, their restoration and their hope and their restoration, all that, right? It mentions nations that are no longer in existence <laughs> as part of that restoration. <laughs> okay? So it's like, what happened to the nations? They don't even exist anymore. You know? So are they literally going to have a future too? I don't think so. You know? So it's obviously not meant to be taken in that extreme literal way. Uh, okay, so just before I run out of time, Deuteronomy chapter 8, let's see what... Uh, Let's see what your uh, dear old pastor had to say about this. He says, you know, to eat the bread of Satan would be to rebel against God's appointed test of humility and hunger, which was foreshadowed by the nation. This, was, this also showed that what Israel did, they did as corporate Adam. This is then supported by the fact that in the temptation, Jesus is pulling from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, which deals with Israel's covenant obligations and ultimately with God's faithfulness. This is the faithfulness God was, Jesus was trusting. By the Spirit, Jesus trusted in the faithfulness of God to feed him and to take care of him, right? So he doesn't circumvent the plan. 
He stuck to the plan, right? God's faithfulness was seen in his many provisions for Israel during the Exodus, especially as Deuteronomy 8 makes clear, the manna, uh, the manna from heaven, the bread. Uh, Jesus' use of Deuteronomy 8 is remarkable because he assumes to himself, listen now, the wisdom which Israel ought to have gained from her wilderness experience. Their hunger should have been the occasion to learn where true sustenance comes from, namely God's word. Uh, because, what is, look at Deuteronomy 8. Uh, you, uh, he humbled you, he led you hungry, he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand. This is what Jesus understood. This is what Israel did not understand. That man does not live by bread alone, but... Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Not just the hand of God, but the mouth of God. So not just, you know, food, like literal you know, sustenance. That's not what keeps us alive. True life is found what in what? Uh, in the word of God. That's why Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, there at the bottom, verses 46 and 47, Moses tells the Israelites what? This word that I'm giving you today is not trifle. It is not an idle word unto you. It is your life. It is your life. In other words, this is how you're going to live, is by feasting on my word. This is all preparation for what Jesus told his disciples over and over and over and over again, right? To imbibe, to internalize him, to internalize his message by faith, to feast on him and feast on his words, to abide in his word, and that he would abide in us. Uh, I got a little preachy there, so I lost my place. Hold on. By quoting this passage, Jesus reveals that unlike Israel, he trusted in God's spiritual provisions within the context of his physical needs. Any questions? We're out of time. Perfect. <laughs> Any questions? No, we're, well, hold on. We're not excused. Don't get up. Man. Man. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's amazing? What's amazing about that, Michael, is that just just when you think that you're heading down the right typological trajectory, right? Like the, the typology here is that, you know, Jesus, he relied on God for the manna like Israel did not. And that's what's being presented here. No, no, no. It's more than that. <laughs> it's not just that. It's also that he is the manna. <laughs> you know, so it's like, take your pick. Do you want to, you know, that's why, you know, like, like Keith quoted last week, you know, the volume of the book is written of him. You know, like, it's all about him. It's all about Christ from start to finish. It's about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And that's what's going on here. So what is, when Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, I mean, think about what he's saying there. It's like the serpent didn't even know what Jesus was doing. Right? It's like he didn't even comprehend the gravity and the extent of Jesus' words back to him. It's almost like, remember, they're in conflict here. They're in battle. They're in war. So the question is, is how is he winning? He's not winning just by resisting. He is winning by fulfilling. Right? By fulfilling every prophecy that was made of him by, uh, what does it say? By fulfilling all righteousness. You know what I mean? Uh, that's how he's going to defeat the serpent. That's exactly what Satan does not want him to do. He doesn't want him to fulfill what has been spoken of him. I think, you know, Satan is a brilliant theologian. Sinister, but brilliant. 
It knows exactly where and what to pervert. You know, I think Satan maybe understood this whole manna concept and wanted to sort of pervert it and twist it and invert it and get him to forfeit it, you see, as he will do with the kingdom, Lord willing, in our next session. Any last questions? I thought it was marvelous. I mean, maybe it was just me. There's a lot of stuff I mean I didn't even get to, but...